It's 6 o'clock, and you are listening to Community Radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. The San Francisco Police Department is in last place when compared to other large cities in the state, according to a report published by the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. They spend more, but arrest less. And the Del Norte Sheriff in Northern California has announced he is resigning. This comes after he was charged with felony voter fraud and lying on election paperwork after he knowingly listed an address that was not his permanent residence. After local headlines, Felton Pruitt speaks with Nevada City Mayor Dwayne Strausser to get the latest on the Nevada City Courthouse. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. From racial disparities in arrests to the percentage of crime solved and the cost of policing, San Francisco is performing worse than other major cities across the state. That's according to a report out this week from the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. KQED's Alex Emsley has more. The CJCJ's report compares San Francisco to five other big cities. We basically found that of the major cities in California, San Francisco has the worst police department overall. Senior researcher Mike Mills says San Francisco spends a lot on policing per resident, while arrest rates have fallen significantly. We're not seeing it in other cities or around the state. We're mainly just seeing it in San Francisco. And it's a massive decline in the percentage of offenses that are solved by an arrest. An SFPD spokesperson said the report is politically motivated and fails to account for the city's large number of tourists compared to other cities. For the California Report, I'm Alex Emsley in Oakland. The family of a man who died in California Highway Patrol custody says a video proves that CHP officers killed him. KPCC's Robert Garova has the story. The video was released as part of a wrongful death lawsuit filed by the family of 38-year-old Edward Bronstein, who died after a DUI stop in L.A. in 2020. Bronstein was refusing to allow officers to take a blood sample. The video shows five of them pinning him to the ground, face down. Bronstein shouts, I can't breathe, at least eight times as officers continue to forcibly restrain him. After roughly two minutes, Bronstein goes silent and limp. A medical staffer and the officers spend several minutes trying to revive him. He died that day. Bronstein's daughter, Brianna Palomino, a plaintiff in the case, says her father left behind five children. His screams, his face, them slapping him around, it will live in my head forever. The family's lawyers called for criminal charges against the officers. A spokesperson for the DA's office said the matter remains under review. CHP did not comment, citing the lawsuit. For the California Report, I'm Robert Garova in Los Angeles. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash Adapting Care. Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. 
Public records reveal that between 2014 and 2019, more than 40% of people seriously injured or killed by Bakersfield police displayed signs of a mental health condition or intoxication. That's according to a new analysis done by Valley Public Radio and the California Reporting Project. KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports. Kelly James hadn't seen her brother in too long. It was sweltering hot August 2014. She drove all over Bakersfield, scanning the streets for him. Then she drove past a gas station on East Brundage Lane. It was blocked off with police tape. I passed by the place and I just seen it, that crime scene, and I just felt it in the pit of my stomach. Her gut feeling was right. Her brother, 26-year-old Michael Dozer, lay bleeding in the parking lot. A Bakersfield police officer had shot him in the stomach. God, just a few more minutes. If I could have just been at the life where got there just maybe 30 minutes sooner, I could have stopped it, you know. Dozer suffered from schizophrenia. He had grown paranoid and heard voices. At the gas station, he splashed gas on the ground and started a fire. Arriving on scene, Officer Aaron Stringer called for backup and speculated that Dozer was on drugs. According to the police reports, Dozer approached fast, with the bike lock over his head. Stringer shot. Dozer was pronounced dead at the emergency room. And I just struggled with that for so long. I just struggled with it. The California Reporting Project analyzed records released by the Bakersfield Police Department related to the use of force over a six-year period. Out of 18 people who died, 11 had a mental health condition, like Michael Dozer, or were intoxicated, or both. Here's Lisa Pickoff-White, the project's data journalist. We counted people described as crazy or strange by witnesses or callers to 911. People with a confirmed diagnosis, like schizophrenia. People who displayed signs of disability or erratic behavior on scene, according to police reports. And people who demanded police harm them. Our review found mental health was a factor in 41% of these cases. Former police officer Seth Stoughton is a law professor at the University of South Carolina. He studies how police use force. Unfortunately, officers are disproportionately likely to use force against individuals with mental health conditions. The Bakersfield Police Department didn't agree to an interview about our findings. In a written comment, a spokesman said our interpretation of the data, quote, appears inaccurate. And, the spokesman said, the biggest error is, quote, the idea that anything about the use of force can be judged posthumously to include some kind of mental health exemption for deadly force. How the Bakersfield Police Department uses force has come under major scrutiny in the last decade. A surge of citizen complaints led to an investigation by the California Department of Justice. Last August, Attorney General Rob Bonta and the Bakersfield Police Department announced an agreement under which the department will reform its practices. Also last fall, the department settled a wrongful death lawsuit with the Dozer family for a quarter of a million dollars. Mary Crawford, Dozer's grandmother, says more than seven years after his death, she still thinks of him daily. Go to the cemetery and put flowers on the grave, you know. So, um... You know, it's just a void in your heart. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk. Coming up on the next part of this investigation, a closer look at how the Bakersfield Police Department responds now 
when a person is in a mental health crisis. And a sheriff in Northern California has announced he's resigning after being charged with felony voter fraud and lying on election paperwork. Prosecutors say Del Norte County Sheriff Randall Waltz knowingly listed an address that was not his permanent residence. Waltz says he followed the legal residency requirements. The owner of the property Waltz claimed as his residence told the Sacramento Bee that he had signed a short-term rental lease earlier this year. And that's the California Report for Wednesday, March 16th. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Here in Nevada County, this afternoon, Public Health reported 16 new lab-confirmed COVID-19 cases. 45 cases are active. Three cases remain hospitalized. According to a press release from the Sierra Nevada Conservancy, a California state agency whose mission is to initiate, encourage, and support efforts that improve the environmental, economic, and social well-being of the Sierra Nevada region, California leaders, scientists, community, and tribal leaders met at this year's Sierra Nevada Conservancy's Watershed Improvement Program Summit to discuss wildfire recovery strategies that can help communities and landscapes not only recover from recent fires, but also become resilient to major disturbances in the future. Recently, we've seen more than 2 million acres burn in the Sierra Nevada. Two fires, including the Dixie Fire, which is the largest single-source fire in California's history, have burned up and over the crest of the Sierra Nevada. At the summit, Hugh Safford, former regional ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service and current chief scientist for Vibrant Planet, submitted that, quote, the real issue is not burned area in most of the state, rather it's fire damage to ecosystems and to human values, what we would call fire severity. Human deaths, structural losses, and economic costs are all rising quickly in California, and forest ecosystems are beginning to experience hotter fires than they can withstand in the Sierra Nevada. End of quote. With more people moving into rural, forested areas, the increase in wildfire severity is why real solutions for post-fire recovery as part of a broader forest and community resilience strategy is so crucial. As the panel discussed, recovery is not about simply replacing trees, it's also about landscape scale forest restoration, water supply protection, strategic reforestation, rapid expansion of wood utilization infrastructure, and support for community-led initiatives. Quote, tree planting is not the goal. Creating forests that are healthy and resilient in order to withstand wildfire and other disturbances, that's the goal. That from Britta Dyer, Senior Director with California and Pacific Islands at American Forests. Quote, in order to do that, we have to be planting trees, cutting trees, starting and stopping fires. Learn more about the summit at sierranevada.ca.gov. Turning now to regional weather in Grass Valley and Nevada City. Tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 44. Thursday will be cloudy mid-morning, then gradually clearing with a high near 62. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, the forecast is similar to Grass Valley in Nevada City, albeit cooler. Tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 26. Thursday will be cloudy through mid-morning, then gradually clearing with a high near 48. The National Weather Service has issued a special weather statement that includes the greater Lake Tahoe area. 
It states that a fast-moving storm system is expected to move across the region this weekend, bringing breezy winds with chances for rain and snow Saturday into Sunday, followed by chilly conditions with brisk northwest to north winds on Sunday. Snowfall amounts 1 to 3 inches above 5,000 feet across eastern California, including the Tahoe Basin, and 3 to 6 inches for the Sierra above 7,000 feet are expected. Next week is likely to be dry and much warmer, with highs well into the 70s for lower elevations and 60s for Sierra Valleys by next Wednesday. For Sacramento, Woodland, and the surrounding region, tonight increasing clouds with a low around 47. On Thursday, expect cloudy skies through mid-morning with a high near 70 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. You've likely seen the red, white, and blue signs that implore us to keep the courthouse in downtown Nevada City. KVMR's Felton Pruitt spoke today with Nevada City Mayor Dwayne Strasser to ask, what's up with our courthouse? We're talking with Dwayne Strasser. He's the mayor of Nevada City, and Nevada City is trying to decide what to do about their courthouse, which is beautiful courthouse, but been around for a long time. Something needs to be changed. Why don't you fill us in, Dwayne, on what's the latest? Well, basically, I I think our decision is that we want to keep the courthouse where it is downtown. But the reality is, uh, for the sake of the uh, judges, the court staff, you know, the employees there and guests that have to attend the courthouse, uh, it definitely needs to be updated and brought up to code for many reasons. You know, for earthquake safety, for asbestos, uh, you name it. Um, You know, and it needs to be designed in a more functional way. Things have changed over the years. And um, we know how critical it is economically downtown. To keep the courthouse there, it, it provides a huge financial influx Monday through Friday uh, to all of our merchants downtown, the coffee houses, the restaurants specifically, that type of thing. So we want to keep it where it is, but we're trying to do our best to find a way that that can be done a- along with a compatible remodel and or rebuild. If it was a remodel, you'd still have to probably have the facilities moved temporarily while you're remodeling. That is correct. And that, that's a slightly different topic. But yeah, that, that is a big part of the consideration as we move forward in different steps. Um, we believe we have some viable options that uh, we can present to the jurisdictional court counsel at the state level that would allow them to function. But in many cases, this, this happens all over the state. You know, different cities have to do this and different counties have to do this regularly with aging courthouses. And they always find some way to either move portables onto a different property or utilize vacant buildings in the proximity of the existing courthouse. There's a study being done right now, and that's going to be finished, I think, sometime in July, and then the recommendations all get put forward. Is that sort of what's going on right now? It is, but it's even, I think, happening more quickly than that. The court council, um, they have many, many experts on this as far as architectural, economic, um, real estate, you name it, Uh, people that specialize in a little bit of everything, parking, you know, traffic flow, that type of thing around a facility, because what what we forget is times have changed. They have to consider keeping vehicles away from courthouse properties now, you know, like 25 feet uh, in case of a bomb, like Oklahoma, that type of thing, and things that we never as a society had to worry about before. You know, crazy things happen out there, unfortunately, nowadays in the world, as we all know. So anyway, they, they're working on that, but it looks like they're they're working on grading the options. We have three options right now. 
and they have to come up with a point system on each to see which are the most favorable options to them. You know, which which of those three meet the criteria that they've set forth best, including cost. And that's actually going to happen more like April, May uh, than even July. I think uh, by July we'll be moving probably quite a way further into the process and or already haven't decided possibly which option they're looking at. The three options are, one, remodel the existing courthouse, two, tear down the existing courthouse and rebuild it, or three, move to another location. Are those the three options? That is correct. And with a a little more specifics, for example, the remodel and or the rebuild, rebuild, one of the things that we have requested and done our best to insist on is that they would still retain the historic design factor, you know, the art moderne exterior, which is what makes it a historic building in the first place in its second life from the first courthouse from way back in the 1800s. We have asked if they do rebuild that they would still either rebuild the facade or they would tear everything down but the historic art moderne facade and keep that look so that it does not affect our historic designation and or just the look of that building for the community's sake. It's a pretty important uh, economic factor, like you said, for downtown Nevada City. So I, I, you see signs around Nevada City when you're driving or walking around that says, keep our courthouse local or whatever. That's pretty much what everybody's saying. So I would assume the city council is leaning that way. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we, we've done study after study. This process has been going on for many years through, I think, three different governors. You know, and for whatever reason, a variety of reasons, the state has stalled financially a couple of times back when Brown was governor. And, and so now it's back on the table, basically. And the funding's been restored by Newsom. So we've already done our homework time and time and time again and proven how critical it is downtown. Uh, but unfortunately, we're being forced to start over again with a new group. And, that, and that's okay. They're just doing their job. And really what it comes down to is, A, financially, we have hundreds of people a day associated with the courthouse, whether it's the DA office employees and or their clients, whether it's probation and their clients, whether it's all of the individual independent attorneys in town that have basically located their offices around the courthouse property in the downtown corridor and their clients. Where do they go? They go for coffee, breakfast, lunch, late afternoon, early dinners, um, you know, as uh, people that come into town to go pay their parking tickets. Um, they'll you know drive an hour or more sometimes from other parts of the county, come in and pay their ticket. And they're going to go downtown and eat. So we know that Monday through Friday during court operational hours, that is a huge foundation of the economic boost that downtown gets. And then our locals, obviously, people like myself, you, uh, we go down and get our coffee early in the morning and we go to work. Um, we might have lunch downtown, but usually we're actually putting money into our merchants' hands more so in the evenings and or the weekends. But we know that a major percentage of the people that are um, spending money downtown for services are court-related. Is there a time project on, say, the a remodel uh, aspect of this? How long would that take? That's still to be determined because they, once they choose options one, two, or three, or maybe either or one, two, or three, they might pick two initially before they pare it down to the final choice. Then they actually will start that process. They, they haven't even gotten to that point yet. I would say if you want to go by our past feasibility studies that we've done many, many years ago, it ranged anywhere from six months to just over a year, depending on what the final decision was, what extent of remodel. For example, even a remodel, they might only remodel a portion by the annex and keep the other part and uh, you know, do more interior cosmetic changes. 
If they do the extensive remodel, then they're tearing half of the place down. If they're doing the rebuild, obviously they're tearing 90% of it down. So that varies greatly, but figure minimally six months and more realistically, it's going to be a year or slightly more. And would there also be changes to some of the streets and maybe a parking situation added on? Uh, That's a huge part of what we're looking at there. Again, it's too early to tell, but one of the most critical things that they are asking for all these years, we had worked under the premise that we needed to provide between 45 and 50 parking spots. That suddenly in the last month has changed to 240 plus or minus parking spots, which was a a big surprise to us and obviously a, a game changer because suddenly we've got a quadruple uh, the amount of spaces that we are finding to be dedicated to the courthouse use uh, during Monday through Friday operational hours. Um, and then, yes, part of that would and potentially either will or can include either uh, redirected traffic flow, meaning maybe a one-way street that's flipped the other way, or maybe even closing down a street or two if needed and expanding parking on or near the, uh, you know, the courthouse footprint. Well, sounds like there's a lot of uh, work still to be figured out. You guys had a meeting scheduled this morning. Uh, that got postponed to when? Next week? Yeah, so next, uh, the next PAG meeting is next Wednesday between 12 noon and 1.30ish. And then uh, Sean Matroka, our retired court officer, is the one that joins me as the second representative for Nevada City. And then we pass that information on to our city staff, our, our you know, city manager interim and our new manager, uh, both Joan interim and Sean new, uh, as well as all of our staff members, engineering, planning, uh, and the other council members. Thank you for putting all this time and work into this. It's certainly a very important project for Nevada City, and we'll find out how things shake out in the future. Yep, I, uh, that's what we signed up for, so we'll, we'll do the best we can, and uh, we will keep you updated as it moves forward. We've been talking with Dwayne Strausser, the mayor of Nevada City. Thank you for your time, Dwayne. Thank you. Have a good day. That's our newscast for this evening. You can listen to it again on our website, kvmr.org, or by subscribing to the KVMR News Podcast. KVMR gets support from listeners just like you and from Serino's at Main Street, serving Italian cuisine since 1983. Open Wednesday through Sunday, 11 to 10 p.m. for lunch and dinner, offering private dining snugs for customer safety and comfort. Information, C-I-R-I-N-O-S at MainStreet.com. And Nevada County Library and the Nevada County Reads Program. Welcoming Madeline Miller, author of Nevada County Reads' featured book, Circe, for a remote Zoom event plus an in-person viewing party at the Madeline Helling Library. That's on March 25th at 7 p.m. Information, MyNevadaCounty.com. Keep it tuned to your favorite radio station. Next in the lineup, The Sages Among Us. Tonight, host Lori Burkhart Frank speaks with Karen Packard, president of Hospice of the Foothills. Then at 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. As always, we thank you for listening and for supporting independent local media. I'm Claudio Mendonça. See you tomorrow, right here, for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. (laughs) 